Layman's is proud to sponsor Self-Sufficient Life. From time-tested garden tools to nostalgic homestead decor, Layman's can help you enjoy the self-sufficient life. Find Layman's online at L-E-H-M-A-N-S dot com. Moving to a new homestead, you get to start with a clean slate. So how do you decide what you need? Hey, it's Tim Young of the SelfSufficientLife.com. Today, Liz and I share what animals and infrastructure we needed on our self-sufficient homestead. Well, welcome back to the podcast studio, sweetie. Hi, honey. I feel like that little munchkin down the hallway is going to come in here in a minute and go, Mommy, Daddy, I want some dessert. <laughs> well, I set her up with a snack, so she should be good for a little while. Why does she think that she should get dessert every time she eats now? <laughs> we're creating a monster. Ah, I think we're leading by example. <laughs> so, okay, so if we go back to the last couple of episodes, I guess two episodes ago when you and I were together, we talked about why we were moving away from the farm and why we were going to retreat to the life of homesteading. And then last time, we talked about the property that we found, the homestead property that we found, kind of described it, what our overall objectives were, which, you know, for the most part centered around freedom and living a, you know, more free and independent life. And of course, we talked a lot about privacy last time, but I thought this time it'd be good if we talked about, you know, what choices we had to make in setting up this property, because, you know, what was really interesting about this place, it's really a clean slate for us. I mean, it had a house, it had, you know, what I would call one outbuilding. And that's it, other than a few fruit trees. And then it's just a clean slate. And given our background with all the animals and all the farm work that we've done, we had a lot of decisions to make. It was kind of intimidating how clean it was because it really was Because we knew we'd mess it up. (laughs) (laughs) Because we came from a farm that, you know, was covered in manure and rusty metal. So (laughs) 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 to have like a manicured lawn that covered a quarter of a mile down to the driveway. It's a little intimidating. <laughs> Manure and rusted metal. That's why no one ever came over for dinner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, um, you know, the interesting choice we had, of course, we learned a lot in the last um, eight, nine years, raising all kinds of species of animals and breeds within those species. And, uh, you know, so we, you know, we, we know, we know far from everything, but we, we do know a lot about you know, what kind of animals are right for us that we want to raise. And here we are starting with a clean slate. And what's interesting is we made a lot of choices that are different than what we made back in our farm days. So it was kind of difficult starting with a clean slate. Yeah, remember before we moved how we were like, oh, homesteading is going to be so easy. We don't have to have a herd of 50 cows anymore. We just need one cow to feed us, you know. And it seemed like it was going to be quite simple, but... Once we started actually thinking about, okay, what animals do we want to buy and how many do we want and what types, we came up with a lot of complex issues Mm. that when you're trying to homestead and you're only feeding a small family, it's, you could produce a lot more food than you need and you could create a lot more work than you intend to. See, I actually think, you know, what the way we're doing it, homesteading is a lot simpler. The life we have today is so much simpler than we had four or five years ago. But you just hit on the point that I struggle with the most, which is, um, you know, well, gardening is one thing. Growing enough vegetables and fruit for your family, uh, you know, it takes some work and is a challenge, I think, you know, regardless of the size of your family. But from a protein point of view, from a meat point of view, let's face it, uh, you know, we could raise and butcher one cow per year. And that would give us all the meat we would need for the year. We would not need any of the meat. Now, we, would, we like variety, so we'd like to have 
chicken and turkey and and pork and seafood and all the other things but you know it's easy to raise one animal and go well i don't need to do anything else this year so anything you do after that you know pigs and rabbits and chickens are are superfluous it's more than what you really need yeah but without it it's not it doesn't really feel like a homestead and that's the problem it's not just it doesn't feel like a homestead but you know in our case when you have a young child you want to teach them, them those responsibilities for caring for animals you want to let them watch the animals breed so you don't have to explain how to breed later <laughs> and all those kind of things. So, yeah, it's a, it's a dilemma. Yeah. So we're still trying to figure out some of that, but we did make some important decisions along the way. Yeah. And right now we're resting because we did a lot of work last year. Well, that's typical, though, of us. <laughs> don't we just kind of jump in with both feet and then say, oh, I need a break? <laughs> well, one of the first things we decided, uh, you know, from an animal point of view, I guess, is we decided that we're going to raise pigs. We raised pigs before. You know, we used to raise, you know, we had hundreds of pigs at one point roaming through the woods. You can get overrun with pigs quickly. Easily. Easily. Pigs breed fast and they grow fast. And they have a lot in their litter. So from your point of view, why did, why did we want to raise pigs in a homestead environment? Well, I think when I think of a homestead, there's just a few animals that I think have to be there. You've got to have chickens. You've got to have cows. You've got to have pigs. You know, they just belong on a homestead. But also, we like to eat pork. Um, you can do a variety of different things with the meat. You know, you can make sausage and bacon and cured sausages and all kinds of stuff. Um, and we just enjoy pigs. They're so much fun to watch, and they're just really interesting animals to observe. So we mm. definitely knew we wanted pigs on the homestead. And what about the fat from pork? What can you do with that? Um, I use it to make soap, or I just use the lard in cooking. Mm. We've even made candles out of it. Yeah, and and pigs, you know, belong on the homestead traditionally because they're the ultimate recycler. I mean, uh, so any scraps you have from the kitchen, the pigs can take, and the pigs can turn that into pork. Uh, pigs are fantastic at, let me rephrase the fantastic. They're, they're, they're a very effective tool to use at reclaiming land um, and to uh, clear land. Um, I, if that's your goal, you know, use them in conjunction with goats. They can really do a great job. Uh, but pigs can also, depending on the breed you use, very much damage land if they're left in a parcel of land too long. I mean, they can really compact the soil um, you know, which is strange because they do so much rooting and you think they wouldn't, but you know, they if you, follow that rooting with big, heavy bodies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they can really compact that soil, but you know, we put our pigs in an area that we fenced off. That's a wooded area. It's a, you know, a quarter acre or so it's a you know, small area and they have done a great job going through and, um, and clearing that out and making it, you know, land that at least we can see and go in there and use if we want to go do that. Mm -hmm. And, um, we decided to raise a different type of breed um yet again yeah we've raised a number of different kinds of breeds on the farm and we're trying something totally different now well i had a lot of reasons for wanting to do that so um from a background point of view on the farm we raise mainly Osabal island pigs which are um you know as close to a wild breed as you're going to raise in a uh, in a commercial setting i guess and we raised those because they were a very unique hog in terms of um uh uh, culinary characteristics. Chefs love them. They have a lot of fat, but the fat basically melts at room temperature. It's it's a it's a it's a very luscious fat to eat. It's not like that hard white fat you think about when you're a kid that you want to cut away and throw away. It's very delicious pork, um, and they're fantastic at being raised in a natural environment, which was what our value system was on the farm. We didn't provide any farrowing huts for them. Um, we didn't provide any assistance whatsoever to our pigs. We put them in the woods, fenced them in with portable electric fencing, 
and expected them to take care of themselves and expected them to take care of their young. And Osavo Island pigs excel at that, right? Yeah, and besides just being the best pork that we have ever tasted, um, a lot about the Asaba breed makes sense on a homestead because they're smaller in size and they have very little feet, so they don't do as much damage to the land. And so usually mm. if you've got a homestead, you don't have acres and acres of woods for the pigs to roam. And so you would want something that's you know needs a little bit less space. And so we really considered them... For all of those reasons, but the one thing that turned us away from raising that breed this time is that they are wild. Mm. They break out of the fence all the time. <laughs> it's difficult to try to catch them up when you're ready for processing. Um, and so it was just one thing that we thought, well, do we really want to deal with all of that? Right. Well, I'll tell you in a second the reason I came down to the breed that we chose. Um, you know, we, we our experience, of course, is Asabal, but prior to Asabal, we have raised Berkshires. Uh, we had a number of Berkshire pigs, and we also raised the breed Large Black, and they're great pigs as well. Um, in our environment now, we're raising Tamworth. Um, and the reason I settled on Tamworth um, was, you know, Tamworth, you know, have really excellent meat characteristics as well, um, and they're much more docile, I mean, than the Asabals are. But I think you could put a leash on them and walk them around. You could put a leash on them and walk around. I mean, they're fantastic pigs. But what it comes down to is what we talked about a minute ago when we opened up this episode. The problem is that it's easy to produce way more meat than we're going to possibly need. Yet at the same time, one of the things that we wanted to do, one of our important decision points this last year was we wanted to have breeders here. And part of this comes from our farming background where, you know, it doesn't seem right for us to just buy a piglet in the spring, raise it, and then be done with it, not overwinter it. We very much wanted at least our daughter to see uh, a boar and a sow and piglets and the whole uh, life cycle of the animals, you know, that end up being food on our table. Yeah, our values haven't changed. Right. And we also always worry about, well, if you're just buying weaned piglets and growing them out for the season, what happens if the next year you can't find piglets that you're looking for? And I know that's probably not likely, but the prepper mentality right. that we have makes us say, well, we're not really self-sufficient if we're relying on someone else to give us one piglet each year. That's exactly right. And so since we knew that we were going to have a male and a female, a breeding pair at a minimum, that meant that, you know, even being conservative, they're going to, even if you only bred them once a year, that's once a year that they're going to produce about eight piglets. Well, there's no way we can eat eight pigs a year, <laughs> not even close to it. One or two is plenty for us when you factor in that we have beef and everything else. So I knew that meant that we were going to have to either sell those or trade for work or something like that. And it's a lot harder to sell an Asabal Island pig. Now, you can do that in the, in the context of a farming enterprise like we had before, where you're creating a market for that and a brand around that and you're selling that. But when you only have a couple a year and you say, hey, I've got an Asabal for sale, it's a lot harder to sell that than it is to sell a 300-pound Tamworth that's seven months old. Yeah. So, I mean, we actually haven't um, tasted the meat from a Tamworth before, but we know a lot of people that raise them, and we talk to a lot of farmers, um, farmers that we respect that we know that raise Tamworth. And, um, you know, they just really said how fantastic they were. And it so happens that not too far from us, there's a farm that um, – just breeds Tamworth right. pigs and he sells piglets every year. I mean, he's got tons of them. This is his, his business. This is all he does. And he raises them the way that we used to raise pigs. They're out on pasture. They're rotated, you know, um, 
they they stay with their mothers, all the things that we felt were important. And so we felt good about buying a couple of pigs from him. Yeah. And, you know, um, I, I'm sure the meat on Tamworth is going to be fantastic. I mean, Berkshires are fantastic. Large blacks were okay. Large blacks weren't my favorite of, of the group. If we wanted the best tasting pork lives, I'm sure we would have settled on Ossiball again. But we I've already explained why we didn't go that route. And our plan, too, of course, since we're homesteaders, is to process these ourselves. So when it comes time to actually kill and butcher the pig that's something we're planning on doing ourselves i, t- I tell you what though i'm getting a little bit worried because these suckers are like four months old and they're got to be 250 pounds already i know i can't believe how big they are well the last breed that was in our mind was the ossobaw where they take so long to grow and even when they are full grown they're quite small and these guys are already as big as a full-grown ossobaw <laughs> yeah. so we decided we were going to raise pigs of course and what we did was we started with three gilts and that's just a young female uh, that hasn't uh, bred yet and we're going to process two of those most likely in the spring and be left with one. And we were going to keep one and then match it up with a Tamworth boar. And then we'll start doing the breeding, you know, this uh, summer or so will be about the right time. Normally you wait at least nine months for the guilt um, to, so that she can breed and then have her piglets, um, you know, at about a year. Pigs, uh, their gestation cycle is three months, three weeks and three days. Easy to remember. So, you know, if you breed them at about nine months at just over a year, She'll give birth to a litter of piglets. And we decided, you know, we had this debate too because um, we went back and forth on, or at least I did in my head about, do I want to put up permanent fencing or do I want to put up a few strands of portable electric? And I know you were looking at me. I I went with, I basically just did step-in post, portable electric, and a solar fence charger. And I know you were looking at me like, okay, uh, you're crazy because those pigs are going to get out and you're going to be chasing them because that's our experience with Ossiballs. But I got lucky because these tamworths are so docile, I think I could just tie a string out there and they wouldn't go past it. Yeah, I mean, they haven't even tried. <laughs> they but haven't done anything mischievous. It, one of the reasons why I settled on the portable electric, though, was I didn't know enough about how the growth characteristics were going to be and what their impact on the land was going to be. And I knew there was a likelihood we were going to need to move them from place to place. So It was a good choice because yeah, looking got- at the size of the area that we gave them, in the beginning, I was like, oh, we could easily raise what we're <laughs> looking at here, you know? I yeah. mean, there's tons of space. And now I see the damage that they've done to the land. And I think, well, if they're going to be 600-pound breeding pigs, then yeah. <laughs> we're going to need some some large acreage for them to roam. Yeah, and so luckily, we have a lot of wood, so it's easy do. to move the fencing and set up something else. Yeah, we do. We have a lot. And, uh, and you know, if you move the fencing, portable electric for pigs like ossiballs in the woods, of course— the, the way you get a tree or a branch to fall is just stick a fence up, and then the branch or the tree will fall the next day on your fence. Now, if you do that with ossiballs, they'll find that, and they'll leave the next minute. But these pigs, I think, wouldn't. But you do have to walk your fence lines every day or so to make sure that the debris is off of that. Pigs will always root and push up dirt and soil on the bottom of your fence, and it's going to short out your fence. So you just have to walk around and be diligent about that. Which used to be a big chore, but now what else do we have to do, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fun to go outside and do that. So we settled on pigs, was our first animal, uh, and then we did the fencing for that. Now, we also, of course, knew that we wanted to have cows here. And that's one of the reasons that we talked about last time in the episode, that we wanted to have, you know, three to five acres of open land or pasture to have that. But in the past, we've raised, well, we've raised black Angus cows. Uh, we've raised a whole herd of Murray Gray beef cattle. And, of course, we raised um, dozens of uh, Jersey milk cows. So we we decided to go the more classic homestead route here to have a dual-purpose smaller breed cow, and that's a Dexter, which is very common for homesteaders to choose. You know, it's a cow that might get to be, you know, 700 pounds or so that people use for both milk 
and for meat. And that's what we started with. And we put a few dextrose out there and told them to start cutting the grass for us. Yeah, there was actually a point, I don't know if you remember this, where you said, do we really even need cows on the homestead? Because we know we're going to hunt and we use venison just like we use beef. And so you were thinking, well, I mean, why don't we just rely on hunting and then we don't even need to raise cows? And I think we just wouldn't feel right if we didn't have cows. We just love them so much. Right. And you know, it's funny to hear, you know, my, my hypocrisy come out. I, I actually now think the opposite. I, I wonder now why hunt when you could, <laughs> when you could have cows out there. I mean, cows aren't free there, but they're almost free. They're not free because you've got to cut hay or you have to at least uh, buy some hay or provide some hay for them. But it's a really minuscule expense in the context of how much beef you're going to get at the end of the year. And considering that you get so much beef uh, for a family our size, it's like, okay, well, other than the fact that you love hunting and there's deer around, why go hunting? Well, I think that's it, is that we do like hunting and we like um, keeping those skills fresh. And Mm. so that's why we would do that. But, you know, I'm glad that we decided to get a few cows. And I think that the arrangement that we seem to have worked out has really been great for us because you run into the same situation as we did with the pigs is, uh, are you going to keep breeders? And if you're going to keep a bull on the farm, um, it, it really does mean that you need to think a bit more about your fencing. You do have to have a little bit stronger fencing and you've got to have ways to separate the bull and you know, all of this kind of stuff. So um, instead of doing that, we found a farm that we could buy Dexters from and they Um, This is their business, and so they have a big farm with a lot of Dexters, and they obviously keep a bull, and that's what they rely on. But they were very willing and very happy to rent their bull out for a couple of months Mm. because our breeding schedule doesn't really matter, you know? (laughs) I mean, as long as the cow has a calf sometime during the year, that's fine with us. We don't really care when it is. And so we're able to get their bulls during their sort of off-season, and they're just couple you know uh, just a town away and so they can bring their bull over drop him off in our pasture he stayed for two months to breed one of the cows that we had then they come and they pick him up and it's good for them because they don't have to worry about him for a couple months it's good for us because we don't have to worry about him the rest of the year yeah and that was so much easier for us than i mean we really lucked out i mean we talked last time i guess the last two times about our criteria for choosing a location but some of these things you just don't know until you get to a location right i mean we didn't know that they'd be a local Tamworth breeder, uh, you know, and that and that'd be pretty common to have those kind of things. We didn't know that there'd be local people that were selling Dexters that would be very happy. Sure, I'll rent you the bull for you know a couple hundred dollars. You can have the bull for you know a few months, and then we'll come pick it up. And what a sweet deal for us! I mean, just to be able to not have to worry about that because if we had a bull, we'd probably have separate paddocks for the bull and deal with the complexities there, which we've done, but we didn't want to have to do that again. So we went that route. We've got the Dexters. But the interesting thing is, is, you know, we kind of changed course a little bit in the middle. We, we love the Dexters. They're good cows. But we really found, at least I think we found, that we missed our Jersey cows. Yeah, because when we moved here, we were excited that we could get a milk share. We went and visited a farm um, that does milk shares, and they milk Jersey cows, which is exactly what we were looking for. They're great people. We liked their farm. We felt good about it. Um, So we signed up for a milk share and we thought, wow, isn't that going to be easy? Because look, (laughs) they're milking for us. We don't have to, we just go pick up the milk, you know, super easy. And it's been great, um, but you wanted to make some cheese and found that it was difficult for you to get enough milk to make cheese because you need a few gallons at a time, at least five or so to make any decent amount. And um, 
you know, we missed having just that extra milk around to make things like uh, butter and yogurt and stuff like that, that I found that I wasn't really making that stuff anymore because we were out of our gallon of milk by the end of the week. And so I didn't have any leftover to rely on. And so we really did miss having the extra milk, but also the relationship with the milk cow. I mean, you just feel a lot more connected to the land and to nature when you're going out and milking a cow every day. Right. And, you know, not to mention the responsibility that you want to teach to your child. I mean, not to, you know, she's four. We're not going to say, hey, get up and go out there and milk the cow. But, you know, to at least have that experience and to make that connection. The cow's out there grazing. Now, come with me. Let's milk the cow. Now, let's take the milk and let's make some butter. Uh, Let's make some cheese because our daughter loves cheese. I've never seen a kid love cheese as much. And she's four and her favorite cheese is a strong blue cheese Mm -hmm. over anything else. So the the ability to let her to make those connections uh, is great. So we broke down and we got a Jersey cow. She's a Jersey bred heifer that's due to calf. Um, probably around April 1st or so. And then that's when we'll transition from buying milk from a raw milk herd share to milking ourselves. And, you know, that's the nice thing again about having pigs when we talk about it. If you have too much milk, too much cheese, too much whey, you know, you feed that to the pigs, they turn it into pork for you. Mm -hmm. And you also get a pet. (laughs) (laughs) Who's the pet, the pig or the cow? (laughs) The cow. Yeah. Yeah. It's really amazing to me how the, the Jersey cow because we think of Jersey's as being small cows compared to the beef breeds we've raised before, how she is such a dominant boss over the older Dexters that are out there. Yeah. She came in right away. I mean, she get, she gets the hay. She gets what she wants, and the other cows just get out of the way. So <laughs> so we'll get, uh, we'll get to go through the process of breaking a, a brand-new milk cow in a couple months, you know, who's never been milked before, and it's going to be fun to do. <laughs> That's going to be your job, okay? No problem. No problem. <laughs> I love doing it. So one thing we did last year, too, was we raised another batch of meat chickens, which was kind of a joke, right? Because we we used to raise thousands, and this time we raised like 25 meat chickens. Oh, gosh. I know. You just kept laughing about how easy it was. (laughs) Like the day before they arrived, I said, "Um, do you think you might want to set up an area for them? (laughs) You know, I mean, you're about to receive chicks in the mail, and you don't have a brooding area Uh, with any warm heat. And you said... There, there's like 25 of them. I can put them in a cardboard box with a lamp on. I mean, Which is what so I did. Easy. Yeah, I got a cardboard box. I stuck them in there, put put a lamp on there, put the shavings in there. And besides, that was in the middle of the summer, so it's really hot. They didn't need that much time and protection anyway in brooding. And uh, we put them out and we raised them in a hair raiser. I mean, usually you would raise them in chicken tractors, but back when we farmed, we created these, um, what we called hair raisers. They're, it looks kind of like a rectangular chicken tractor, but we used them for raising rabbits. And uh, we just repurposed it to raise the chickens in. And golly, you know, it, we raised, you know, the Cornish Cross, which we never did really as farmers, but as homesteaders we did because that's what we could get in the summer. And I couldn't believe it. You know, in six weeks, those things are huge. And, you know, six-pound birds. Yeah. And it reminded me of how I don't want to raise them again. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I miss the naked necks that we used to raise, you know, the you know, ones that we, we call them the Georgia rednecks. But we, we raised those in the Freedom Rangers. And those birds, to me, taste much better and are way more hearty. Yeah. But, you know, that, that raising the chickens, too, also speaks to how we really did fall into an area that's great. Because, um when our chickens were ready for processing, you know, we were set to go do it just, you know, on a table in the backyard, but we hadn't really had time to set up any kind of a processing area. So we didn't have our compost piles built. So what are we going to do with the offal and all this kind of stuff? But we found a farm um, that we got to know the people a little bit and they were saying how they're processing chickens. And we said, oh, well, we could come and help you. Mm. And they said, sure. And why don't you bring your chickens along and we'll just do yours at the end. And 
I mean, how convenient was <laughs> well, that, you know, yeah. to find people that they were happy to have our help because how often do you find people that actually have processed a lot of chickens that right. can keep up with their work pace and all? And we were happy that they said, well, bring your few little chickens along and yeah. we'll help you process them in the end. Yeah, that was great. And we've gotten to go there a couple of times to process chickens and it's like always so much fun for us. It's like vacation for us. You know, we get <laughs> right. to go process chickens and then walk away and say, so you guys have got the rest of the farm and all the issues, right? <laughs> you got all the customer issues. You got all the fence line issues. Oh, by the way, on the we're driving out. Hey, your fence line's down. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then we just hit the road. So yeah, that was really nice. So we got the we did raise some meat chickens. Um, and we've got the cows out there ready to go, and they're growing. And just like with the pigs, uh, you know, our hope is with the cows that we process them on farm, at least from a beef point of view. And that was one of the reasons why we wanted to go with Dexter's or a smaller breed that we think that we will be able to. Now I'm not going to pretend that that's not a big job. It's not like processing, you know, 150 pound, 200 pound deer. You know, it's still a bigger animal. But the goal is to be able to do all this processing on farm. But there's, you know, some things we still don't have that we're going to get. We don't have the laying chickens yet, for example. And I know I miss them. I bet you do too. Yeah, we just didn't get here um, at the right time of year. You know, it really is best to get the layers in the spring um, and raise them up. I mean, you can buy point of lay hens, but they're fairly expensive. And so, I mean, it just made sense to put it off until we had time to build a nice area for them. So I can't wait mm. to get them this spring. Well, we'll really talk excited. about because it doesn't yeah. feel like, you know, our right. home unless if I hear the growing outside. Right. <laughs> you know, I just don't think it is a homestead. To me, a homestead has to have pigs and it has to have chickens. Yeah. You know, but now that's not an absolute. There are people. I mean, I remember interviewing somebody. Um, I think it was uh, Kendra, you know, who said that she raised one pig and the pig was crazy and got out of control. So she doesn't have a pig again. <laughs> right. So it's totally fine if you don't have a pig. But to me, this is our preference. Right. Yeah. My preference for sure is you got to have a pig. You got to have, you know, laying, ch laying chickens, hens on your farm. But then, too, you know, when we pick out layers this time, uh, which we haven't decided what breed we're going with yet, but. It's so nice not to have to worry about productivity. You know, right. how many eggs are they going to lay? How long are they going to lay into the cold weather? I mean, instead, I can actually just look through that catalog and say, wow, that one's cute. <laughs> that one's pretty. Maybe yeah, I want to sure see them run will. around. I'm sure that's what you'll do. I want to have like a flock of Skittles. Yeah, I'm, I know. I'm, I'm sure. And you're totally right. We don't have to worry. You know, if we get a few eggs, that's plenty. I mean, you know, it's like when you talk about a milk cow. You know, they talk, jerseys, when you hear people talk about jersey cows, you hear people say they get three gallons a day. Some people say five gallons a day. Listen, if you get only one gallon a day, that's seven gallons of milk a week. How many of you out there are buying seven gallons of milk a week? So, you know, all these animals produce more food than you can possibly use. And if we get laying hens and get more than two eggs a day, you guys are going to have to up your production because <laughs> cause I eat two eggs a day, but you know, you and me don't. I know she hates eggs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's not a, so we'll give her the job of cleaning the eggs. <laughs> you know, another interesting choice we had this last year, um, people who followed us for a long time know that we've raised lots of livestock guardian dogs and we raised crosses of Anatolians and great Pyrenees for years. And they were just fantastic dogs at patrolling our property, protecting the animals, um, and um, also protecting the family. I do miss them. We do miss them. Um, and we knew that, again, this is partly the homestead mentality, but also the preparedness mentality. We knew we were going to have large large dogs because that's part of your defense system, if you think about it that way, protection and defense. But we decided this time to go a different route, and the emphasis was less on protecting the, the animals, the livestock, because we're not going to have as many, and more on protecting the family. So what do we do? Well, we decided to get a German Shepherd pup, um, and we looked around um, a long time trying to find 
was one that that we wanted and found that they were really expensive and we you know we're debating like is this really the right way to go should we just get a livestock guardian dog because they really did guard us too right. because they bonded with us you know um and i mean they would bark anytime someone would come up the driveway or whatever and so we were kind of thinking could we just do that but um we really wanted our daughter to grow up with a dog you know i mean every kid should have a dog and if they can grow up be young together and and grow up together i think that they can really develop a strong relationship and especially with the german shepherd breed mm -hmm. we're hoping that they can develop that strong relationship to where the dog will really look out for her and really protect her you know and we've heard some amazing stories about how mm. German Shepherds have done this for their owners. And um, and they're beautiful dogs, too. And right. so we decided to to go with that. So we did find one. Um, she was born in September. And, man, is she growing fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's, she's like one of the pigs. She's huge already. Yeah. <laughs> Big paws. Well, I guess there were two reasons that, I, in addition to you know the, the reputation of German Shepherds to be great family dogs, and I felt confident that she would bond with us real well. Um, there are a couple of reasons that I was interested in going that route versus going the livestock guardian dog route. Livestock guardian dogs, Anatolians and Great Pyrenees in particular, by nature, love to bark all night long. Because what they do is, you know, rather than wait for a problem, um, a coyote or a bear or anything to come up, they tend to patrol the perimeter of a area, whatever they feel their territory is. In our case, it was the farm. And they will bark out at the wilderness, um, out at whatever might be there and encourage it not to come this way. Well, one of the first things we did was we fenced in our backyard because we have an orchard back there with fruit trees we talked about last time, and we built a big garden back there. So we wanted to keep the deer away from that. And since we wanted this dog to protect our family, first and foremost, we knew that dog was going to be within the fenced area. That meant that if I got Anatolian or Great Pyrenees, they'd probably be walking right outside our bedroom window all night long barking. And the theory was that the German Shepherd would stay on the porch and be quiet unless there's trouble. And she's only four months old, but that's exactly what's happening so far. Yeah, yep. She's a, We do have a black lab, an older dog, and um, she's bonded really well with him. And uh, when it was really cold a couple of nights ago, we brought him in the house because he has he's, his hips have trouble and everything, especially in the cold weather. So we let him sleep in the warm house. And that was really the only night that I've heard her out on the porch barking. I guess she missed him or something. But um, I haven't heard her bark mm. at night other than maybe once or twice where she probably saw a coyote or something. Yeah, yeah. Maybe she saw a big bear. Okay, well, if you're going to say it, say it into the microphone. What, honey? Maybe she saw a big bear. Yeah, and for you listeners, no, that's not Liz. Liz, hasn't. she's not sucking helium. That's our daughter who jumped up on our lap, and she's been very good listening until then. So <laughs> let us get back to this. So the German Shepherd's working real well for us. I mean, we do miss the uh, livestock guardian dogs, uh, but I think that was a really good choice for us in the homestead environment. You know, another choice that we had to make, because um, I know you love the bees we talked about before, but we took a different route in how we're going to raise bees this time and how we're going to manage bees. Yeah, when we first got bees, uh, we didn't know anything about them. And so we went with the Langstroth hives because, you know, that's just the most common thing. We could find out the easiest information about that and all. Um, but after a year or so of raising bees, um, I got really interested in the top bar hives. And at the time, it just wasn't practical for us because we already had all of the other kind of equipment. And so to switch over and everything, it, it just wasn't worth it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but since we don't really need to focus on producing a lot of honey, um, you know, we need some honey, but we don't need a ton of it. We could go with a top bar hive that um, doesn't give you quite as much honey and uh, you do get more wax from it because you use a crush and strain method for collecting the honey rather than using an extractor. And so um, we found as homesteaders, we have a lot of use for beeswax. And so we wanted to try out the top bar hive method rather than the Langstroth hives. But you know, by the time we got moved in, it was already spring. And so um, we were able to put in an order for a package of bees right at the very last moment. And we got our package of bees and we got our top bar hive. And we're all ready. We put them in and, you know, it was a disaster. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I am pretty positive what happened was that um, there was a queen in the ball of bees and there was an additional queen cage with another queen in the package of bees. And so um, we essentially put in a package of bees with two queens and they swarmed and then I caught the swarm and then they swarmed again and then I tried to catch some of them um, and they eventually just all left. Yeah. And so uh, we didn't have enough time to put in another order because all of the um, beekeepers around uh, were stopped. They had stopped selling their bees for the year. But the company um, really apologized because I guess they had a couple of customers that had that problem. And so they gave us another package of bees. How'd that go, hon? It was a disaster again. <laughs> and I started blaming it on the top bar hive, but I don't think it was. I think it was just like a string of bad luck or something. So when I had caught the last swarm, um, the, I didn't have very many bees, but I caught some of them. And I was hoping that the queen was there, although I never did see her. But I had them in the top bar hive. And I tried to combine the new package that they gave us as a replacement um, with the bees that were already in there. And instead, they just killed off the ones that were already there. And then the new package left because I think they were upset that I was trying to put them into a house that was already occupied. And um, so we ended up with no bees. And Section 8 bees. <laughs> no time left to order anymore. So that poor hive has been sitting out there empty mm. all year long. Yeah. But... I'm excited to try again. <laughs> yeah, a lot of things went great last year, and that didn't. But that's okay because, you know, we've had a, a ton of those experiences in our farm life as well. We know all about things don't always work. It's not a big deal. You know, if you have crop failure. We had crop failure with bees last year. It happened. But the important thing, because in this section of this episode, what we're talking about is what were the critical decisions we decided on in setting up our homestead. For example, we knew we wanted pigs. We got pigs, and we wanted cows, and we wanted to raise meat chickens, and we're going to want to raise layers. We just haven't done that yet because I didn't have time to build uh, the hen house and the infrastructure and the fencing for that. Um, but we wanted bees as well. We definitely need bees. You have to have bees on the homestead <clears throat> right. because you've got to pollinate your garden and your pasture grasses, your fruit trees. And the honey and the beeswax are so useful. So I really, we have to, we're going to figure it out. Right. But I started to think, you know, it's the top bar high because I never had any problems like this. I mean, our bees flourished with the other kind. But you and are so like that. Anything that you try new, you just assume <laughs> like, this, this isn't going to work. work. This doesn't work, right? <laughs> Always assume the worst when you can't. But I'm going to stick with the top bar high because it is a more natural right. way to keep the bees. It's less intrusive on them. It should be easier as a beekeeper um, in terms of the workload. 
And so we're just going to figure it out. <laughs> you mean you mean you're not going to be saying, Tim, come out here and lift this 90 pounds of supers off so yeah. I can get the honey? Yeah. yeah, I'll come up with a new excuse for you to go out and <laughs> yeah. do something. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> so we wanted bees, of course, not just for the honey and for the wax, but also for the pollination. And you just love the critters anyway. Yeah. So we wanted to have that. And, of course, as we talked about before, we have you know a whole bunch of fruit trees, 23 fruit trees in the back, and we're going to have a lot more after this year. So the pollination is really important for and us. And we noticed on the trees that the pollination was abominable. Yeah. I mean, they dropped blossoms. We had all kinds of pollination right. problems out there. We barely saw our bees. Right. And we're not used to that. You know, where we came from, we had, you know, I know there's a lot of talk about colony collapse disorder, but we had the opposite problem for years where our bees just continued to flourish. So this was different for us, but we'll figure that out this year. And I guess the last thing that we talked about as a must for last year was the garden. Oh, of course. I mean, that was the first thing that we worried about. Yeah. Um, we picked the homestead based on where we could put the garden. <laughs> was there a flat area that got plenty of sun? Right. And so you worked tirelessly building us the most amazing garden. Well, that's a good segue into the building. So I thought we'd talk about, you know, what we just talked about was what the what we determined was important for us to absolutely have on the homestead. There's still a whole bunch of things, as you know, that we're still debating whether or not we want to have, which we can talk about later. But those are the things that we talked about last year that we're going to have. Now, since we're going to have those things, we had to do a lot of building. Let's talk about what our building strategy was last year right after this. Hey, it's Tim Young. When my wife and I moved to the country, Layman's.com was one of our first stops. That's where we found the oil lamps, canning supplies, hand crank grain mills, wood cooking stoves, even the emergency supplies that we depend on. Founded in the 1950s, Layman started as a hardware store serving the Amish in Kidron, Ohio. Today, Layman specializes in practical, non-electric goods that will help you live the simpler life you're craving. So even if you work in the city, you can still be a modern homesteader. And Layman's has the nostalgic and practical home decor and kitchen appliances you're looking for. So whether you're looking for time-tested farm and garden tools or off-grid stove and appliances, Layman's has the high-quality products that every farmer, modern homesteader, and prepared person needs. Layman's, for a simpler life. Find them at laymans.com. That's L-E-H-M-A-N-S dot com. The first thing we built was a very tall fence in the backyard. When I say tall, it's a six-foot-tall now, you're going to hear people say that six-foot fence isn't adequate for deer because deer can jump eight feet, blah, 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 and all that stuff. That is totally true. Deer can jump more. I mean, and the best fence for deer is probably a three-foot fence that's a foot away from another three-foot fence because deer like to jump straight up. They don't like to jump, you know, out two or three feet. But uh, where our fence was, was we have uh, our backyard is kind of on a crest. So it slopes down on all sides where the fence is. So the deer would basically have to jump eight feet up. They'd be going up a hill, and they'd have to then jump straight up, and they wouldn't have any room to run because our fence goes right up to the tree line. So the theory was that that would give us plenty of height, and it sure has. And we knew we were going to have at least a German shepherd roaming that area, and so it's not going to be such a desirable place for a deer to want to jump into. I hope that German Shepherd roams. Right now, she sleeps a lot on the front porch. I mean, during the day, she barks when she sees a deer at the end of the driveway. But at nighttime, they could be any animals back there eating the garden and 
Yeah, but we thought the cat was lazy too. And then you saw him running with a mouse in yeah. his mouth the other day. Went so. out, yeah, went out into the woods to pick a mouse because there's no mice around the house. That was good. So we built this very tall fence um, that goes around the backyard. It was about a, it's about a thousand feet, um, and I did it all with wood post. Uh, so I think I put in 95 wood posts when I did it. And you know, you don't have to. We've done. Um, I guess I'd like to talk about that for a second. We've done, um, uh, you know, a lot of fencing with a lot of T post. Uh, you know, sometimes you'll go, you know, at a minimum 100 feet for your wood post and you put T post every 10 feet in between. Sometimes you go over 300 feet for wood posts. But one of the things that we wanted to do here is we not only wanted to have a functional homestead, but we wanted to have a much more aesthetically pleasing homestead than all that rust and manure that you said we left <laughs> behind before. And so um, I wanted to put wood posts in the backyard so that would at least be a more attractive fence, too. And we struggled with the type of fencing we were going to put in um, because we kind of had the burdensome challenge of we wanted something tall to keep the bear and deer out, but we also wanted something that was low to the ground that would keep all our little dogs in. We have yeah. two little house dogs, and they seem to be little Houdinis. I mean, they dig out and find the smallest little holes and break out of every kind of fence we try to put up. So we had to have a tight woven wire fence where it was tight on the bottom where they couldn't push it up and something tall enough to keep the um, wild animals out. And we also wanted to be pretty and to put like a wooden fence all the way right. around was just so outrageously expensive. And right. so you finally broke down and said, okay, I'm just going to do it this way. I'm going to do the woven wire fence, but I'm going to put up all wooden posts so it will look pretty and you'll be happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Are you happy? I'm happy, okay. except the little dogs do still break out. I know. Well, I did a welded wire fence, um, and it's a two-by-four welded wire fence, which is, you know, more commonly thought of as like horse fencing. Uh, but the problem is when you have, you know, some some hill and undulations to your land and crest and all those things is you can run a, a stretch of fence 20 feet, and, you know, there can be little gullies that you've got to go over with a fence. And, well, that's easy to keep in a German Shepherd or whatever, but when you got a silky terrier— that dog is just my nemesis. You know, he finds a way to get out and goes and follows you down the driveway and everything else. So I'm constantly going back and doing little patches to fix those holes and pretty much have him under control. But like you said, he'll find a new way out. But the we the first thing we did in terms of building last year was to build that tall fence so that we could um, surround the backyard and protect the fruit trees and protect where we we're going to do a garden. And then we got into doing the garden. Now, I will say for listeners of this episode, I'm going to put um, today on my website at theselfsufficientlife.com, I'll, I'll do a, a pictorial blog post of the garden that we built so you can see. We, we basically decided to build raised beds, which is we had before, but the raised beds we had before were, you know, down to the ground, like, you know, two by six lumber well, type we of raised didn't, bed. Well, we didn't really start with the raised beds. We started with basically a field garden. Um, we grazed our cows, or not grazed, we fed our cows hay there for the winter. And you, mean we, years, you mean years ago when we first started? Yeah, yeah, and then we turned pigs in there and let them root up the soil. And then we sort of raked the soil into um, very shallow beds. I mean, they were really right. just rows. And... Um, after a couple of years of building up the soil, we started to put some wood frames around them. So it was sort of like that's a right. raised bed, but I mean, they were only maybe six inches high. Or yeah, something, you're right. You know? That's right. We were didn't do that. And so, and so this time we wanted to take a different approach. I mean, we knew, we knew for two years we were going to move from farming to homesteading. So we had a lot of time to think about what do we want? So what was important to you in the garden area? Well, the garden was always a struggle to keep up with. And part of it was because of the way that we were doing it. Um, 
you know, I'm just not the type of person that can go out every morning and hoe the rows and pull the weeds and stuff. I just, I never did it. And so a complete field garden for me was not practical. It would get overrun very quickly. And the very shallow raised beds, although it kind of kept everything contained, it always gave me the problem of what do I do in between the beds? And so we would put down plastic or hay or um, straw, you know, um, but things would start to grow out of the beds or into the beds and the dogs would get into the beds. And so, well, we, and you, you know, when you say the dogs get in the bed, remember Lenny, our black lab, mm-hmm. what does he do? He goes there for lunch. He goes, he, <laughs> he loves bell peppers. Yeah. He will go pick the peppers off the plant. So one, we knew we had to have something that was going to not allow that to happen. Right. And so we decided, um, to just invest some time and money into making a really, tall raised bed garden um, that was going to make it very easy for us to maintain and also keep the animals out. And it was a lot of work that you did. I mean, you just put in so much effort and it was pretty costly in terms of the materials and getting the soil to fill in the beds. And, um, you know, it's still not done. We need to put more soil in, but uh, it's worked out great. It's been quite easy to maintain. Yeah. Well, You know, so one of the objectives I had with the garden, um, you know, I don't mean for you because we both garden together, but you do more of the garden work than I do. Um, But I wanted to make it a place that you were just really happy to be at. Not just because if you got to go out there and do the work and the weeding and everything, it needs to be peaceful and it needs to be aesthetically pleasing, just like I was talking about with the fence. So I had dreamed for the last couple of years of being able to make some kind of garden area for you that would be a really attractive place. So like I said, I'll, I'll put the pictures on the website. You can see what my idea of attractiveness is, and you can decide whether or not that works for uh, other people. But we ended up making these um, basically 24 inches high, and the sides of the raised beds is just um, galvanized roofing. So you can imagine a 4-foot wide, 12-foot long raised bed, and I built 14 of those. So there's 14 raised beds out there, and first thing I did was after taking a, a bobcat or a skid steer for a few hours and leveling an area because we don't have level land. Remember, you know, a lot of people don't and we have a, a crest back there. So we had to kind of level that off. The first thing I did was I bought billboard tarps. And if you're not familiar with those, you can just do a web search on uh, use billboard tarps. They're very thick plastic, you know, like 20 mil plastic uh, that you can buy used, you know, like $25 each. And they're 48 feet long by 14 feet wide. And I put down three of those. Uh, so I made an area of 48 feet by 42 feet. And if you go look at the pictures on the website I put up, I also included a diagram of how I sketched out what the garden was going to look like. So that was the first thing. And I built the raised beds on top of that. And then in the raised beds, once they were put down, I cut away the plastic so that we could have drainage. And then we decided to do a culture raised bed within that. Yeah, so um, you found free wood, so you didn't have to worry about cutting down and cutting up a whole bunch of trees. Instead, um, someone just delivered a dump truck full of logs that it was good for them to get rid of, and um, you carried them all out and filled up all the beds as the first layer. Yeah, they, yeah, they had um, they had cleared some lots in the city, and uh, I saw an ad on Craigslist, and they brought me two dump trucks full, you know, basically of that. And they, I had to cut the logs. I mean, they were way too big for the beds, of course, but I didn't have to cut down the trees, which was really nice. So, you know, the theory there in Hugo culture basically is you're putting in logs or wood first, and then you're putting in some soil over that and planting into that. And over time, um, those logs, um, well, at least in the beginning, they're actually retaining a lot of the moisture 
Uh, so you don't need nearly as much watering in a culture environment. And that fact is really important when you're in a raised bed environment because raised beds have such great drainage. They tend to need more water anyway. But also those logs are going to break down over a period of time uh, and create more nutrients for the soil. And man, has it worked because we had a very hot summer and I didn't have to worry about watering that much. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I had to water, but it wasn't it was not like in Georgia where you had to make sure you were watering every day. Um, and every I have a little um, moisture meter. So every time I would go out and check to see if they needed water, I mean, most of the time it was still fine because the logs underneath were retaining all of the moisture. Mm. And you can see that they're already starting to break down because on top of those logs, we did put in uh, a mixture of topsoil and compost. And um, I guess you probably put, I don't know, maybe an eight inch layer yeah. or so on top of the That's logs. Right. And on some of the beds, um, now that it's fallow for the winter, you can start to see some of the logs showing through. So that dirt has settled down and some of the logs are starting to break down. And we knew that we were going to have to top it off probably for a couple of years. We're going to have to work on building up the soil. Um, but we can do that sort of a little bit at a time. We would have to build up the soil where whatever gardening choice we made. When you move to a new homestead, unless you're finding a place that has been doing organic gardening the way you want to for years, you're going to be creating a new garden. And as you said earlier, we created that years ago in our last residence, you know, in the middle of a pasture. So you're going to build your soil no matter what. But our goal was to make a place that was enjoyable to be in, that was very easy to maintain. Now, remember before with our garden, how you had to go between the rows and always weed. And it was mm -hmm. a disaster. There's been not, we haven't pulled one weed this year. No, those billboard tarps have kept everything down. So I've got mulch on top of that. The billboard tarps keep everything down. Um, there's just no weeding and inside the beds is, you know, easy to get to. And that dog, Lenny, can't get up there to get the peppers. <laughs> yeah, but now the cat jumps in them. <laughs> yeah, the cat. Oh, geez. It's not a big litter box. <laughs> you know, we've never had a cat before. This is a new deal for us, but, you know, it's part of our homestead experience here. You know, another thing that we did in the that garden area was we built a play area, a playhouse for our daughter. And, yes. Oh, what and, a savior. Yeah, and I Having the combination of the fenced-in backyard and a playhouse right near the garden has made it so easy right. to get some work done. Well, because I, I built her one at the last place, which is, you know, you know if you bought it, it'd be like a $4,000 playhouse. I built her this great double-decker playhouse at the last place, and it was 25 yards away from the garden, but in the same fenced area. But the 25 yards makes a big difference because you'd be working in the garden, and she'd be over there, but you can't really see her, or she gets out and goes behind it. You can't see her. And so we integrated it right into the design of the garden this time. And you're right. It makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was good. And part of it too, the, of that, of that hill, when we, when I, um, we smoothed that out and leveled a little bit, we left a mounded hill there that I put a lot of dirt in and worked. And you turned that into your medicinal garden. Right. And so I, um, had potted up a lot of, um, medicinal plants that I had from the last house and brought them with me here and so i was able to you're not talking about marijuana or what are you talking about no <laughs> it's medicinal they say yeah i guess so um but i was able to plant into the garden area right away and um they just took off i mean they are so happy there and the whole bed has pretty much filled in already mm. and it gives me tons of space to have everything that i want um but what i found is that it's so neat like mm. 
we have a beautiful, neat garden now, which I love. Don't take this the wrong way. And I love having the neat medicinal garden. But something feels wrong. Yeah. And it's like, wait a minute, where are all my wild plants, you yeah. know? And like, I want to go digging up roots right. and things. And the bed is so neat and pretty that I don't want to disturb it. I don't want to do anything. Yeah. So I actually started over on the edge of the woods, my little wild medicinal garden. Oh. So <laughs> I'm just going to let this stuff run wild over there. And um, that way I'll have a lot to harvest and I won't have to dirty up the pretty area we, we can't get the we can't get the farmer mentality out of us you know yeah. all those things we have before we just keep doing you know with different animals and species and breeds and plants and and whatnot but the garden area is working out real well I and mean, it's nice to have everything in one spot this time we've got mm. the vegetable garden the medicinal garden We've got the orchard right back there. We've got the playhouse and everything and is the all bees. fenced in. The bees and the bees, there. but even the bees, we didn't talk about be. this. But when we, when we did the bees before, you know, we didn't have a nice area. So this time, before we put the bees out there, I think I built like a six foot by ten foot area and put down tarp there as well and put gravel on top of that so yeah, that when so you're now out, you don't the, have to weed whack in front of the hives and <laughs> sorry, make the bees. bees angry. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I mean, everything here has been about making it a, a little bit more enjoyable. Um, a part of homesteading, which the funny thing is when you homestead versus farming, you, you know, you have the time to do those things. Mm -hmm. And we have had the time to do that. So pictures of all that stuff is on the website. You can go to the selfsufficientlife.com and see that. Okay. So another thing we had to put up was a workshop. We didn't have any kind of workshop. There was no outbuilding here. There was an outbuilding that somebody before was using kind of as a studio or something. We turned that basically into a storage place for, you know, preps, if you will. I mean, we put a lot of food storage in there. And this is be in addition to them way beyond our pantry. But we didn't really have a workshop to do any kind of work. And we went the same route as before. We put up a metal building for that. Uh, yeah. I mean, you had dreams of building something, um, you know, and, and making it look a little bit more rustic and homey and all. But um, after a few months of having to build all of the things that were on your list on the front porch and, you know, having to run back and forth for tools and just not having a good area to work, you said, I just have to get something and get it fast. And so you settled on a metal building, but right. you put in a nice cement floor, um, and there's plenty of space in there. Mm -hmm. um, so and it's and it's right beside the house. Right. The one we had before, we had a metal building, but it was you know 80 yards from the house, and that means different uh, electrical requirements, and it was hard to get to. So we centralized everything here, right around where our house is. Mm -hmm. And you know, in terms of building something rustic, I finally got a chance to do that. You know, so just got finished building a barn. Uh, with a hay feeder in there. Uh, well, yeah, and so this was nice because we've, we've been wanting, to, we needed a barn because we had the cows, and we didn't have a barn on our last property, even with all the cows we had. Partly in Georgia, you don't need it as much. And, you know, just partly we were feeding big uh, bales of hay outside, and here we were going to feed square bales of hay, and I wanted the ability to store that. So, um, we and when you only have just a few cows, you can pamper them a little bit that's more. That's <laughs> right. And we wanted to do that. It's like, you know, we, we have more time to think about those things now. So, but this was an experience that we really had wanted. We, um, mm. you didn't just want to build a barn. You wanted to build a barn using the materials that we have available to us on our land yeah. and do it all or as much as you possibly could yourself. Yeah. And so I'll put another blog post up, a pictorial blog post up of this barn and you guys can see it and all you really good builders can just make fun of me. It's fine because I'm not a good builder. Um, but you know, but at the same time, I'd like to encourage people who don't build to say, no, look, you can just do it. I mean, uh, you know, because you can build things that are good enough for animals and for cows. So we cut down, you know, a bunch of cedar trees from our property, you know, small cedar trees for post, um, we needed a number of those. The barn is basically 12, uh, let's see, 24, 24 feet by 24 feet um, was basically what it is. And then rented a portable sawmill 
for two days, which is really affordable. And then cut down a number of big trees, pine trees and poplar trees. Pine trees, we milled those into dimensional lumber to use for the framing, um, mainly two by fours and two by sixes. Um, and then we milled the poplar into siding. Um, so the poplar mainly was, you know, anywhere from one by six to one by tens for the siding. So when you look at the pictures, you'll see that. And then on the inside, I just built a, you know, a hay feeder for, you know, six cows that basically will hold. That's um, kind of a gravity hay feeder. You know, you can put the hay in there and it will last maybe, maybe up to three days worth of feed for, you know, four or five or six cows so that you don't have to feed them all the time or go out there. And is now our favorite place to play. <laughs> well, I, I, and our daughter loves going out there and just having a picnic, sitting on the hay bale, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's a it's lot. It's just of, so warm and cozy. And you get to see the cows right there eating away. And another thing we did, though, you know, just in terms of future projects that we may be talking about a year from now, when I milled all that lumber and we had extra time, I cut down a big, for you know, relatively big cedar tree. And then we milled that cedar into two-by planks. So, like two by 12s, two by 10s, big pieces. And the thinking is that we may uh, redo our kitchen countertop and do it out of cedar. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So it's in the workshop, which of course smells great, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It smells terrific. So we did get to do some rustic building. So we'll put pictures of that as well. We built. And some very rustic building was yeah. a deer blind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plywood and sticks. <laughs> yeah. Plywood and sticks is a good way to do it. But we have a number of big deer blinds here on the property. I mean, when I say big, you know, the box blinds, you got ladders that go up to them. They've got benches in them that will seat three people or so. Um, and so we already had uh, one. Now we have two. And in addition to that, we have four more ladder stands that are permanent ladder stands that go up to a platform blinds. So we have lots of deer locations here, you know, and we had to build some of that and, and that's here. Um, we also had to do the doghouse. Now, we didn't talk about this so much, but I know you've been wanting a good doghouse for years. I have. And um, like I said earlier, our black lab is getting old and I really just wanted him to have a comfortable place and not have to worry about him. Uh, and, you know, it gets colder than we were used to. And so, um, I just having, um, a place for the dogs where I don't have to worry about them, where I know they're safe and they're comfortable, just takes a load off my mind. I mean, they are our pets, you know? Right. And so I do like to pamper them a bit. And when we had, um, you know, a whole bunch of livestock guardian dogs, I mean, I think there was a time when we had seven livestock guardian dogs on the farm and there's just no way that you can have a shelter for a group of dogs that big. Plus we had pet dogs and working dogs and, you know, they're not all going to stay together and stuff. So it's nice now to have just our pet dogs right. and to have a, a great dog mansion for them to sleep in. I honestly believe the livestock guarding dogs wouldn't go into a shelter you made for them anyway. That's true. They sleep under trailers, livestock trailers. They sleep under trees or whatever. They just, they don't like to be that domesticated. So I don't think they would do it. So we built a nice dual dog house. So there's an entrance on each end, if you will, for each dog. And then in the center, I created a separate section where they can go into in the winter uh, and where it's really warm. And I insulated the floor basically with dirt, with earth. Um, and then I insulated the sides with real insulation. So um, it's it's warm in there. It's comfortable. The dogs, we, we were down to, you know, two degrees a few days ago. The dogs have had no trouble. Yeah, the puppy's fine. Yeah. It's just our older dog had a little bit of trouble, but... It wasn't because of the doghouse. It's just because he's old. Yeah. But, I mean, they could stay out there 
and I don't have to worry. It's yeah. great. Yeah. And I think we talked about before, you know, we built out the pantry. We won't talk about that here because we're getting kind of uh, late in the episode, but you know, I think we. But are you sick of building shelves yet? <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought I was done with the pantry, but then yesterday you needed more shelves, and well, when you store a lot of food, you need a lot of shelves. But yeah. you've come up with an awesome system for shelves. I mean, these things yeah. are rock solid. They are. I've never actually um put a picture up of those or anything, but I will at some point. I'll do a picture of the shelves. But it's not just for the pantry. You've got this big craft room, you know, that needed a lot of shelves, and you wanted more shelves this week, and mm -hmm. so you know we we do that. And you know, you need a craft room here because it was, a there's a lot of stuff in our environment to play with, which is half of what you do. <laughs> and the other part is you make all of our homeschool stuff, mm -hmm. and that kind of gets to the next thing. We built a homeschool room. Um, at some point, I'll do a, a you know a pictorial post of that. It's just a it's just a one open room, but there's shelves in there. You keep asking me to make bookcase after bookcase, and then tables, or you make things and. Then you make all the homeschool supplies for her. I know. I'm just so grateful to have it. I talk to families that don't have space for a dedicated homeschool room, and they talk about how they've got to pull everything out onto their dining room table and then pack it all away when they're done. And it is so nice to have everything out. And I think that it really, um, I, I think that she uses the educational materials that we have a lot more frequently because mm. they are all sort of on display for her in bookcases and things. And they're organized in a way where she can easily get to them and then easily put them back. And so it, it affords us more educational opportunities throughout the day mm. versus if we had to pack everything away in a closet and bring it out just for, you know, school time or whatever. Yeah, because when you have a dedicated homeschool room, the four-year-old says, Mommy, I'm ready to learn now. Please teach me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she does say, I want to play in the schoolroom. And so I say, go for it. You can play right. with anything you want in here, you know. And so I guess the last thing that we did in terms of building projects, and it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm trying to catch my breath this month until you keep saying this month you get, you've got a lot more building projects for me <laughs> was we talked about this as last episode after Christmas was the trail we built uh, or I built for your for Christmas you know and the survival practice area and this is something that we've talked about for years wanting to have a place that we could go to to practice you know fire building skills survival shelter skills you know just all those kind of things not that you need a place for it but I just think that it will draw us out there more and especially now with Maisie to be able to have a place where we say okay we're going here for a couple of hours and she she knows what to expect you know mm. she knows what it's going to be like there she knows what she can play with and what she can't you know um, maybe she's got some things to keep her busy out there or whatever I think that it's just going to make us feel like it's a little bit more accessible a little bit more easy to go out and say oh I have an hour let's go out and what do you want to practice today right well it was really important to me to get that that trail done and to do some more trails because in the winter time here it's beautiful walking through the woods because almost all the trees are deciduous so there's no leaves and there's nothing but I tell you in the summertime it is like a jungle here and I didn't like the idea of you guys walking through the woods I mean it's thick there's there's no paths really. And now I built you, this is not like a two foot wide trail. It's like an eight foot wide trail. It's amazing. So, you know, and I'll, I'm going to do another pictorial post of that as well so that you can see what we're talking about. So we've got that done. And the idea was that will be the first of many link trails that can take us around our property. And, you know, that's how, that's how we want to spend our days. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to, we have enough food, so we'll go walk <laughs> in the woods. All right. So that's it. That's, that's kind of the recap of what we did in terms of our decisions for animals and setting up the farm and all the building projects we've done this last year. Wow, we did a lot of stuff this year. Which is why I want to catch my breath. <laughs> but there's still a lot of things to come that we'll talk about in future episodes. You know, we still have these decisions that we're debating back and forth about animals, you know, like rabbits, ducks and goats and turkeys and 
you know, we don't have a pond or a greenhouse or a root cellar and things that we've had before that we're debating whether or not we want or not. So, But it's probably good that we have taken almost a year and sort of experienced the seasons here because it gives us a better understanding of what we really do want and what we could live without. Yeah, I know. I want a day off from building. <laughs> I mean, I love to build things, but I mean, at some point, you know, it's like I just don't want to build anything today. Yeah. So I'm sorry. That's fine. It's a pleasure building for you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Liz and I sharing our self-sufficient life. Perhaps it will give you some ideas and inspiration as you look for ways to become more self-sufficient wherever you are. As always, the show notes from this episode are available on my website, theselfsufficientlife.com. Please subscribe to the Self-Sufficient Life podcast on iTunes or elsewhere, and please take just a second right now to leave a review. It helps with the rankings and allows others to learn about a self-sufficient life. So until next time, here's to hoping you find a way to opt out today. Alarm wakes me up and I'm right out the door. Fighting traffic in a car that I'm still paying for. A cup of coffee, four dollars gone. They stick me in a cubicle. And now I'm somebody's pawn The concrete jungles all around me There's gotta be a better way I'm sick and tired of staring at a screen all day While strangers teach and watch my children play I'm sick and tired of stressing over which bills to pay Not gonna live my life that way I'm opting out today Oh, I'm opting out today They hand me a paycheck so I can Pay all I owe Kids wanna play But I always gotta go